Wonderful. You may be seated. Grab your journal and a pen. Uh, it'll come quickly here in just a moment. Let me, let me begin with a, just kind of a take on parenting, which will lead us right into this. Many people uh, are subjected to a flawed parenting model that instills fear into the, the hearts of the children. Now, I believe in, in corporal punishment, so just balance what I'm saying here. My, my parents, uh, my, my dad in particular, was not raised in a healthy parenting model. There was a lot of fear, a lot of intimidation. There were not corrective spankings, there were beatings. And there's a big difference, okay? So let me start this again. Many people are subjected to a flawed parenting model which only instills heart, uh, fear into the heart of the, heart of the children. Now, while fear can be a healthy deterrent, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it can be a healthy deterrent when used correctly. Fear ultimately doesn't accomplish the ultimate goal because the ultimate goal is not just change in behavior, it's change in the heart. And, and if fear and intimidation and, and, and uh, are used incorrectly, it can actually have the opposite effect you intend. Rather than changing the heart for good behavior, it can actually harden the heart and create more bad behavior somewhere down, down the line. Now, uh, I step back even further now to look at the teaching of Jesus and of Paul in the New Testament. Uh, what you'll know very quickly by looking at the teaching of Jesus is that his teaching emphasized that good behavior flows out of a good heart. Remember how they talked about a good well brings forth good water and a good tree brings forth good fruit and an evil tree can't bring forth good fruit. Only a good tree can bring forth good fruit out of the heart issue of the issues of life are coming is what Jesus is teaching us. So he's saying good behavior flows out of a good heart. Paul picked that same teaching up and Paul really believed that Christians, you and I, are best motivated to live a certain way on the basis of what God has already done for us, not on the basis that we are afraid of God, afraid He's going to punish us. You see the difference. Paul said Christians are going to be better motivated, not by fear of God punishing them, but by explaining to them clearly what God has done for them. 75% of the book of Romans has been theological. Now, I'm skipping chapters 9, 10, and 11 this morning. They deal with Israel. We can come back to those at another time, but it's really dealing with Israel. Answers a lot of questions about the nation of Israel and how they rejected God and can they be saved and what is a remnant. Let's just put put a parenthesis around that for a minute. And let's go to chapter 12 this morning. Paul spent 75% of the book of Romans now out of 7,100 and something Greek words, 5,000 words have been spent talking to you about what Christ has already done. Not how you're going to get zapped if you step out of line. Does that make sense? He's talking to us about really understanding the work of Christ, your salvation, what it means to be in union with Christ, what it means to be free from the punishment. There's therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. What that really means to be free from the penalty 
of our sins. The, the execution of the sentence is no longer applicable to you. It's been done. To understand what it really means to be adopted and to be God's child. And nothing now can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So today we go to chapter 12 where finally, after 12, 11 chapters, Paul's going to begin to talk to us and address how a changed heart is the catalyst for good behavior. Paul taught theology first, and then what to do, how to live out of that relationship that the theology described. Now that pattern of teaching, for those of you who are teachers and are interested, that pattern of teaching specifically theology, uh, and then following with ethical implications for behavior change is referred to as the indicative and the imperative model. The indicative means this is what has happened, this is what is established fact, and now here's what should happen as a result of that established fact. Does that make sense? Here is the facts, now here's how the implications are, what the implications are for changed behavior in our lives. Chapters 1 through 11 are the indicative, this is what God has done for you. Chapters 12 through 16 are, okay, what are you going to do about it? Now what? What are the implications for us living out our lives in 2019 as followers of Christ based on what we understand from Romans chapter 1 through 11? Our thesis question this morning is very straightforward and very simple. Our thesis question this morning is why do you live the way you live? If you would write that at the top of chapter 12, it would be a good place to start. Why do you live the way you live? Now, in chapter 8, he talked about those who walk after the Spirit and those who walk after the flesh. And those who walk after the Spirit please God and those who walk after the flesh can never please God. You have to walk after the Spirit. And talked all about the Holy Spirit uh, and how He worked in our lives to help us to sanctification and ultimately in the resurrection of the law be completed finally. Now, th- this morning, as you answer this question, why do you live the way I, you live or make it personal? Why do I live the way I live? It's obvious this morning that those who walk in the Spirit, live after the Spirit, should answer that question in a profoundly different way than people who walk after the flesh. I mean, that's, I think, obvious this morning, first of all, that how you answer that question is not necessarily the same as people who don't know Christ out there, how they would answer that question. And uh, a pagan might say, when presented with this question, if we were in a college classroom and we asked this question, someone who doesn't know Christ, someone who's a pagan might say, well, I just, I live for pleasure. I, I live my life so just, just to experience pleasure and for the pleasure that it brings me. And I can understand why someone who doesn't know Christ would say that. I get it. I mean, I, I get it. Uh, I can understand just by my observations of this world and my experiences, that God intended for life to be enjoyable, didn't he? I mean, if you just look around you at creation, you know God intended for life to be enjoyable. Otherwise, you wouldn't have taste buds, nerve endings. I mean, otherwise, there'd be no such thing as giggling children or puppies or or good friends and, and good food and walks on the beach and sunsets in Texas. I mean, in flowers with color, you know God intended life to be enjoyable. Otherwise, all fish would be gray. You understand what I'm saying? Why do they have to be blue and green and purple? Why? Because God intended for there to be colors 
God intended for there to be joy. God intended for life to be experienced. Those things do exist. They exist in abundance. And they exist, from our understanding, as gifts from a loving God that wants to make your life spicy and flavorful and enjoyable. And those are gifts from God. The problem is that some people who don't know God approach life as one long obsession with experiencing pleasure. In other words, people who don't know God would answer the question, I live for pleasure, why? Because what else is there? Just one long, endless pursuit of experiencing pleasure. Others that, that we know approach life as an endless pursuit of wealth. Now, there's nothing wrong with providing for your family. I encourage it. Bible says you should do it, okay? There's nothing wrong with providing for your family. There's nothing wrong with being successful. I encourage it. There's nothing wrong with being an entrepreneur. You should be one. There's nothing wrong with having a business, owning a business, running a business. There's nothing wrong with having wealth. There's nothing wrong with that. It's wonderful. But you should also know that you can take that to an extreme. And a lot of people live just on one long, relentless quest for wealth. And that long, relentless quest for wealth is just a raging furnace that burns away a person's modesty and inhibitions and self-restraint so that now people in America are famous. And I ask myself, for what are you famous? Because I dated 20 girls on TV and got rid of all of them but one. Dude, I've been doing that for a long time before I got married. And I never got famous for it. You know? And some of you girls did the same thing. You dated 20 guys, maybe all at once. Who knows? And uh, what I'm saying is now we're famous for nothing. We're famous because we got fat lips and big behinds. We're famous for no accomplishment at all, is what I'm saying. And we're modeling something for a younger generation that they should... We're giving some notion that life is about pursuing a few minutes of fame. Or pursuing, you know, a six-figure check. And that's all that life is about. But what I see through a different set of worldview lenses is people sacrificing their reputation and sacrificing their dignity... For just a little bit of money and a little bit of fame. Why do you live the way you live? Listen, the way you answer this question. The way you answer this question is going to be indicative of how you understand your salvation. Let me, let me explain. If you answer, I live my life the way I live because I don't want God to be angry with me. Well then we might fairly conclude something about your theology that you think of God as a vindictive judge, an angry God waiting to punish you when you disobey. We might further conclude, if you answer that way, I live the way I live because I don't, I, I, I don't want to offend God and I don't want Him to be angry with you. We might conclude that you think of Christ's saving work as simply the first step in a long journey of salvation, as you work your way towards God's favor and towards heaven. In other words, Christ did his thing, but now I have to complete what Christ started, and I have to earn God's favor continuously for the rest of my life with my good behavior. And whether or not you're able to pull that off determines whether you're going to ultimately be saved or not. 
Now, that's no way to live, by the way. Let me give you the other side of the coin, how you answer this question. Conversely, could uh, indicate to us that you have put your faith in the gospel, knowing that Christ has justified you through faith in his finished work, and that now you are no longer standing as God's enemy, but you are now standing justified in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you know that God is not out to hurt you, but you have now become His adopted child. And He has only your best interests at heart. And you are motivated to live a very different life because of those facts. Now, I hope you're in that camp, is what I hope. Okay? What we live the way we live because our hearts are filled with gratitude for what God has done for us. Not out of fear. We live the way we live because our hearts are filled with gratitude for all that Christ has done for us. Now, let me read Romans 12, and let's just study verse 1 for a few minutes this morning. Romans 12, verse number 1. I appeal to you, therefore, you might want to circle it. Now, those of you who've been with us a few weeks know that when you hit that therefore, then you turn around and look backwards, and he's summing up what he said in this case. He's summing up chapters 1 through 11, the whole thing, okay? Based on all that I've taught you, the indicative, what is, what God has done for you, I appeal to you on the basis of Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, I appeal to you, therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God. Now that's worded very unique it's worded specifically on purpose not by the mercy of God by the mercies of God and if you want to know what those mercies are it's all of the truths that have been taught from chapters 1 through 11 the mercies of God is what's been discussed now the mercies of God are your justification through faith in the gospel The mercies of God are the redeeming work of Christ which purchased you from the bondage of sin. The mercies of God is the imputation of Christ's righteousness to your account so that you stand before God righteous. The mercies of God are peace with God, the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, deliverance from God's wrath, eternal life through faith in Christ, adoption as children, being named co-heirs with Jesus Christ, the future redemption of your body in the resurrection, the certainty that God is always for you and not against you, and the promise that you will never be separated from the love of God. I appeal to you. With that understanding that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, when you understand the appeal makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Why do we live the way we live? Let me appeal to the mercies of God to instruct what our behavior should be. In light of God's mercies, let's talk about why we live the way we live. Let me read the verse further. I appeal to you, therefore... Brothers, sisters, by the mercy of God, mercies of God, did you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God? Now, sacrifice paints a vivid picture in our minds, right? And if it paints a vivid picture in your mind, can you imagine what it did to people in the first century who were very 
very acquainted with sacrifices. It was a part of their lives every, every day and every week and every year that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. The word sacrifice paints a visual picture of sheep and cattle being drawn toward an altar in some center of worship where those animals would in a few minutes have their throats cut and they would be slaughtered, they would be butchered, and they would have their bodies laid on flaming altars where they would become burnt offerings to turn away the wrath of whatever God those sacrifices were being laid on the altar of. In other words, the people who first received this letter, the only sacrifices they knew anything about were dead sacrifices, burnt sacrifices, butchered sacrifices. So when Paul comes out with this language to appeal to you on the, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies living sacrifices, this was revolutionary language that no one had considered before. They were used to dead sacrifices. Who knows about living sacrifices? A new idea. Let me read the rest of the verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, the old KJV says, which is your reasonable service. It's a good, it's a good rendering. This helps us a little bit, though, because this helps us to understand that this way of living is your, say it out loud, is your living a certain way that Paul's talking about, based upon what God's done for you, is not just following a list of rules, it is your spiritual worship. See, we think about coming to church on Sunday and coming to worship. Wait a second. You can worship God on Monday by living in obedience to the way He wants you to live and listening to His Holy Spirit and following Him. It is worship. Every moment of our lives can be worship if we're following the Holy Spirit and letting Him guide our behavior based on what Christ has done and how He has united us to God in a relationship Sunday is not the only time Christians worship. Dismiss that right now. By the way, if you're only worshiping on Sunday, what kind of bad Christian would I be? When God says I'm to present my bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, that's my spiritual worship. So, let's see if I can again keep defining it. A Christian then is a person... Willing to live for God out of a deep sense of gratitude for all that has been accomplished on our behalf by Christ. Desiring to live for God is the rational, intelligent response of people overwhelmed by the mercies of God. It's the obvious choice. It's what makes sense. You say, why do you live the way you live? Why don't you live the way I live? Why don't we all live the way the Holy Spirit wants us to live? You see what I'm saying? It's the obvious, intelligent, rational response of someone who understands what God has done for them. Okay, well, that leads to the next question. I mean, when I answered one question, it just makes you ask another question. The next question is this. Well, then how do you become a living sacrifice? If God wants me to be one, I'd like to know how to be one. What does that look like? Somebody model that for me and show me what it, what it looks like. So, verse 2. 
Do not be conformed to this world. So that's going to be one element of it. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, notice the structure of the verse if you're taking notes in your journal. There's a negative, there's a positive, and then there's a stated outcome, a stated result. This is negative, this is positive, and this is what should be the expected outcome. Don't do this. Instead, do this. Okay, this is what will happen. Does that make sense? Very nicely laid out in verse number two. The first part, don't do this, is don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Now, Paul's point's really straightforward. You don't have to hurt your brain on this one. Paul's point is we ought to quit allowing ourselves to be continually shaped by this present evil age, and we ought to instead have our minds continually transformed, continually made new. Easy enough, right? Okay? Don't be conformed to this world, but have your mind continually made new. Phillips, one of the Bible translators, paraphrased it this way, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Paul's saying, don't, be, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, its motives, its way of thinking. So, so how could a Christian become conformed to the world. If he's saying don't be conformed to the world, in what way could we be conformed to the world? All right, well, let's let's talk about that for a minute. A Christian can be conformed to this present evil age when our thoughts and our motivations become characterized by the very things that typify the world's thoughts and the world's motivations. Let me drill down a little further. When a Christian looks at things exactly the way the world looks at things. When a Christian is motivated exactly the way the world is motivated. When a Christian holds opinions and views that are exactly the same as the world's opinions and views, then we have been shaped by the world. John picked this theme up in in 1 John, and here's what John wrote. Uh... For all that is in the world, 1 John 2, 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. If you're living after the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, in other words, promotion, fame, well, if this is your driving, that's from the world. You're thinking like the world, you're just like the world. That's not from the Father. You see, the pervasive attitude among our peers today in our generation is that we are the most intelligent, most gifted, most enlightened generation that has ever lived. Now, I doubt very seriously if that's correct. I doubt very seriously if we are the most enlightened, advanced generation that's ever walked on the planet. What we are is the most self-indulgent generation that's ever walked on the planet. And so what Paul says is you've got to change the way you think. One of the first areas he addresses is your self-image. How you think about yourself. How should a Christian think about their self as opposed to the way the world thinks? Promote yourself. It's all about you. It's all about you. Paul's going to tell us something very different in verse 3. You ready? For by grace, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, Not to think of himself more highly than you ought to think, but to think sober judgment 
each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You see, the world's living all about self. It's all about self-indulgence. And Paul said, you are important and you are precious. I've already told you for 11 chapters, you're God's adopted child. You're very special and important. But don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Don't think that this whole world is about you. It's not all about you. It's about God. It's about God. It's about something bigger than you. But the world thinks very differently. The world thinks it's all about me. It's all about my comfort, my promotion, my happiness, my joy, my pleasure, my fame, my wealth, my happiness. It's all about me. That's self-indulgence. And it is self-indulgence that keeps parents from spending time with their kids, ultimately. They have other priorities. It's self-indulgence that keeps sons and daughters from spending time with their aging parents. You have other priorities. It's self-indulgence that suppresses our desire to live for the benefit of others. A life that's not about us, but it's a life about serving others. Self-indulgence kills that desire. Our self-indulgence keeps us focused on advancing our own agendas and our own desires, and it prevents us from investing our lives in the lives of others. I mean, for those of you who make disciples, you're you're sitting back now saying, why didn't everybody make disciples? Self-indulgence. There's no time for that. There's no place in my home for other people at the kitchen table. It would cost me my food. It would cost me my time. It would cost me my energy. It would cost me to live for others. It would cost me to... I'm not... And if you're not wired, if you're not centered on that, if you're not thinking about that, if your mind is not aligned with... See, if your mind's aligned with Christ, you live for others. If your mind's aligned with the world, you live for yourself. You understanding what I'm saying here? I'm trying to be very clear in my language. Paul said, you've got to change the way you're thinking. You're not, you're not of the world. You walk after the Spirit, Romans chapter number 8. You're different in light of what God's done. I'm making an appeal that you transfer. Listen, when you get saved, your thinking doesn't change overnight. You have the same habits, same desires. You're the same person. You've been born again spiritually. But now some changes, some transformations need to happen in your life. And what Paul's saying is the biggest transformation of all that needs to happen needs to happen right here in your head. You need to change your way of thinking. That will drive behavior. Changed heart will drive changed attitudes and changed behaviors. So we're battling this spirit of self-indulgence. And we're trying to rid our lives of all the pain and make it comfortable as we can. And when we rid our lives of all the pain and all the sacrifice, we've also eliminated every possibility that we might attain true greatness. Listen, I'm battling something as a parent. I want to make my kids' lives better than my life. So what I do is take all suffering out of my kids' lives and all pain out of my kids' lives and never let them experience the, the word no. Never let them experience not having the latest brand. Never let them experience any suffering. Never let them experience hard work. Never let them experience baking heat. Never let them experience life without AC. Never let them experience any hardship. And what have I done to my boys? I've created two young men, if I do that, who have no shot at greatness now. They have no shot at greatness. I've warped them. Does that make sense? You're understanding, I don't have time to explain, but you understand why they'll never be great if I do that to them? Because they don't know how to suffer. They don't know how to do without. They don't know how to strive. They don't know how to go into the flow. They don't know how to stand on. You understand why we're hurting our children if we do that to them? Now, I'm not saying torture your kids. Please hear what I'm saying. I'm saying if we design our lives 
to get rid of all pain. Listen, some of you have designed your life in a biological way where you don't want to experience any muscle soreness, therefore you don't go to the gym. Is that fair? You don't like the way it feels to be sore. So you don't go to the gym. So I'm going to ask you an honest question. Have you helped yourself or have you hurt yourself? You don't want to be honest, do you? You've hurt yourself. You've hurt yourself. Some of you would be greatly benefited by being in Stephanie's Spanish classes, but you don't want to be in Stephanie's Spanish classes because you'd have to apply yourself and study and conjugate Spanish verbs. You see what I'm saying? So you just said, ah, that's not for me to study and work hard like that. I'd rather watch Survivor or something. It's just much easier. Yeah, it is. And you've eliminated any shot you have at discipling a Latino and getting a reward for eternity because you weren't willing to suffer at all. So you've eliminated the shot at greatness you've got. Now, I could just do this all day with you, give you scenarios, okay? But I don't want to do that because it's not really my sermon and it's not a parenting sermon. But I'm just trying to tell you our thinking needs to be transformed. We're so conformed to the world that we no longer have very much to say to the world. We're so conformed to the world that now we've borrowed their lifestyle and we've borrowed their attitudes and we've borrowed their opinions. So what do we have to offer the world? Whatever you have to offer them is what they already have so they don't care. Does that make sense? I'm describing the brokenness now of the church. And it's because we are conformed to the world. What church do you know of that is heralding across the metroplex right now, take up your cross and follow Jesus? What church do you know of in the, in the metroplex that's blasting through the airwaves to the listeners, please scale back your pleasures? So that you can take some of that money that you're blowing on yourself and invest it in the kingdom of God so we can make disciples and plant churches and reach the unreached. Where is that message going out across the Metroplex today? You understand what's happening? What's happening is the church is appealing to this generation in the same way the sinful world through marketing is appealing to this generation. We'll make your pain go away. We'll make you feel better about yourself. We'll provide such entertainment to dull your senses so that you'll think you've become a living sacrifice and worship God when all you've done has been entertained. Now go back out into the world and live just like the world. We've eliminated any shot at advancing the kingdom of God. Say so why? Because we're conformed to the world. Now what Paul is commanding is he's saying we need to experience transformation by the renewing of our minds. Something's got to change in us so that behavior then changes out of us. We have to experience transformation. And the transformation we're looking for is not behavior change. That'll come if heart change happens first. So he's saying let's, let's, let's have our minds renewed. Alright, so that command, that command raises a how and a why question for me. If I need to experience transformation by the renewing of my mind, my first question is, why do we need our minds renewed? Because I need to know the why before you make me go through it. Explain it to me. Why do our minds need to be renewed? Well, our minds need to be renewed because our minds were contaminated in the fall, Genesis chapter number 3. And if I would recommend at this point now, at chapter 12, that everybody go back and read Romans chapter 1 this week in your devotion time, okay? And by going back this week and reading Romans chapter 1, 
in your devotion time, you're going to refresh yourself on exactly what the unsaved mind is capable of. We are tainted by sin. We're not able to think rationally. We're not able to think spiritually until something changes in our minds. That's why we need our minds. The question then is, how? How does this mind renewal come about? Well, this is why we ask in our discipleship process that you be in the Word of God every day. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. How does mind renewal come about? It occurs as the Holy Spirit, living in you, takes the truth of God's Word that's coming into your life. Now, if God's Word's not coming into your life and you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're already dead in the water. Do you see that? Do you have the Holy Spirit in you? That means, are you born again? Yes or no? Okay. Now, if you intake the Word of God, you're giving tools. Ammunition might be too strong. Tools. You're giving fuel to the working of the Holy Spirit in your life. And as the Word of God comes into you, the Holy Spirit's taking the Word of God and applying it to our minds. And when that happens, the regenerated mind, the born-again Christian mind, begins to have new understanding that it never had before as the Word of God is being applied to it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Your born-again mind, now your point of view changes. You used to think this, but now you think this. Your worldview changes. Your attitudes change. Your responses change. Your goals change. Your desires change. Your mission changes. Your aspirations change. How did it all change? Because the Holy Spirit's taking the Word of God and transforming my mind. Now, from Romans 12 to Romans 16, the end of the book, This is the discussion for the rest of the book now. It's a discussion on not being conformed to the world, but having your mind transformed makes you think differently about your own self-image. Think not highly of yourself, as you ought to say. Think differently about the church body. Think differently about spiritual gifts. Think differently about police officers and those in authority. I just can't wait to get to, to that chapter. This world's very, very anti-law enforcement right now. You know what we're exhibiting? A carnal, worldly mind that's not been touched by grace. We'll get to that later. The transformed mind thinks differently about unbelievers. The transformed Christian mind thinks differently about believers. The transformed mind and all of those subjects are what Paul is addressing, 13, 14, as we go forward with the book of Romans, okay? In each of those scenarios, we're not to think like the world thinks, but we're to think like a transformed, like a a godly person, like the Holy Spirit thinks, a transformed person thinks, someone who walks in the Spirit thinks, and we approach our self-image from a biblical point of view. We approach the church from a biblical point of view. We approach spiritual gifts from a biblical point of view. So how does our thinking change? How do we renew our minds? Let me say it again. We renew our minds... By letting the Word of God come into our minds and allowing it to affect the way we live. The way we think. The way we speak. The way we respond. We're allowing the Word of God to change our lives. And now we live in light of what God's Word says rather than what the world says. 
Now, this is not a subtle thing. This is a big deal. We live our lives based on what God's Word says, not based on what the world says. And when we do that, when we do that, we show ourselves to be living sacrifices, good, acceptable, and perfect to God. We show ourselves to be people who are worshiping God every day by how we think. Do you realize a holy thought can be worship? A holy response can be worship. A holy act uh, can be worship. It can be worship. Everything you do at work, doing a good job at your work and letting your light shine, that is, it can be an act of worship every day of your life. So he talks about don't think of yourself incorrectly, but think about yourself correctly, self-image. Having dealt with self-image, now Paul addresses how the renewed mind views the church, the body of Christ. All right, let, let's, let's talk about that. You see, two terrible things happened in the fall in Genesis chapter number 3 when Adam and Eve brought sin into the world through their, through their disobedience. Two terrible things happened in Eden. Firstly, man fell in his relationship to God. And secondly, society became hopelessly, hopelessly fractured. Let's deal with the first. In the fall, man became alienated with God and ceased after his sin to reflect God's moral goodness. And instead, man became a distorted caricature of God. Instead of living in a manner that honored God, man became obsessed with himself, self-obsessed, self-important. Man became confused in his thinking. Again, read Romans 1 this week and you'll see how the fall messed our heads up. Just messed our heads up. And I can prove it to you because the fallen man then begins to make images and worship birds and trees and snakes and the sun and oxen and crocodiles and cats. And man begins, ultimately then begins to worship himself as God. Which is what Pharaoh taught, which is what the Babylonians taught, which is what Nimrod said, am I not a god? Pharaoh was worshipped as a god. Alexander the Great thought he was a god. They all became, man became god. That's what the fallen mind ultimately comes to. And then, the first family disintegrated. Just disintegrated. Just imploded. The first family disintegrated and ceased to be a family community that cared for itself. And it said the first family turned against itself until murder was unleashed within the first family. You turn two chapters, two pages in your Bible from the initiating of these events and the entire civilization on planet earth is now ruined by sin by Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of his thoughts was of his heart was only evil Continually, community and society had imploded by Genesis chapter 6. And this morning we're so thankful that God determined in His love and that God had the wisdom to fix the two problems that we had created because of our sin. And so God determined to resolve man's individual enmity with God by sending Christ into the world to redeem us from the penalty and the power of sin. When Jesus died on the cross, now I'm telling you, giving you theology from Romans now. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for every nation. And from every nation, he purchased men and women for himself out of the bondage of sin. He reconciled them to God. 
and He imputed to us His perfect righteousness so that we're no longer God's enemies this morning, but we're God's beloved children. And He did that for each and every one of us as individuals whom He loved. How wonderful is that? That solved our problem between us and enmity with God. But now we still have a community problem, a society problem. So what God did next is Jesus ascended to heaven and then he sent his Holy Spirit into the world. And he sent his Holy Spirit to gather every redeemed person into a body of community which we call the New Testament church, the church of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit pulled all of us believers together in this body so that the church could now demonstrate to a world that knows nothing but fractured community, so that we could demonstrate to that world what real, genuine, honest community looks like. That's what a New Testament church is. Ladies and gentlemen, you are the body of Christ. This building is not the church. You are the church pulled together by the Holy Spirit to demonstrate what real community should look like. If we could go back to Genesis 1 before the fall where people were mutually co-equal, treated each other with respect. There was no black and white. There was no male domination. There was no subjugation. There was no hierarchy. If we could go back to the beginning when there was no sin, that's what the New Testament church is supposed to be showing the world right there. If we could go to the Sermon on the Mount where you put other people first and serve other people and love other, that's what the New Testament church is supposed to be showing a broken community of this world. You see, that when God made the church, he did something so wonderful. The church is extremely diverse. Extremely diverse. The church should never be racially divided. The church is not exclusive for one gender. The, the church does not care if you're Republican or Democrat, Jew or Greek, rich or poor, male or female. We are all one in Christ, Galatians 3. And what the church cares about is that Christ has redeemed you. Filled you with the Spirit and pulled you together into the body of Christ to be a community reflecting Christ to a fallen world. What I'm saying this morning is we need you to be a part of us. We need you to be a part of us so that we can make the greatest impact on this world that God wants us to make. Now now let me address just a little technical word. The word you in verse 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Those you words are plural, which being from Texas, it's really easy for us. Here's what's really being said. It's plural. Y'all offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Does that make sense? Y'all, you all be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So that together, inclusively as a body of Christ, together we can prove what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are to be transformed together in community. The implications are very clear. We can't do it alone. That's the implication. And for those of you who've been trying to be a better Christian on your own, attending church for an hour a week, and trying to live on your own apart from that, to be God wants you to be, you already know it's been, a, it's been a failure. You've not made very much progress. None of us make any progress until we plug into to community and do it together with the team. If we decide 
in our minds, transformed, if we decide, let's change our thinking. Guys, let's do this. Let's all make up our minds to do this thing together. To stop being conformed to this present evil age and to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Something remarkable is going to happen in this church. That's what the Bible says. Something remarkable is going to happen. Because Christianity is lived out in community. Christianity is about community. Your flesh fights against it. You don't want to go sit at somebody's kitchen table and be accountable, maybe. I'm tired. I've had a long week. Or from the disciple maker's point of view, you've got needs too. You, 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 You hear your flesh whispering into your, well, I'm tired. Well, I had a hard week. Well, who's taking care of my needs? Well, well, listen, I, yeah, I get it. I get it. It's a constant battle. That's what Paul said, Romans chapter 7. We're to be transformed together because together it works. Alone, it doesn't work. We do not grow up. We are not transformed apart from sanctified community. And that's the point of verses 4 through 8. I'm going to read them now. For as in one body we have many members... And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually we are members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. Use your gifts. He's going to list them. If prophecy, well, prophesy in proportion to our faith. If service, then use your serving. The one who teaches... In teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, this spiritual gift of giving, then give in generosity. The one who leads, lead with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, I'm ready to conclude, so stay with me right here at the end. You have, you, have been given a gift from Almighty God, a spiritual gift. Maybe several. Maybe two. Maybe three. Maybe four. I don't know. But at least one. But you've been given gifts by Almighty God. If you don't use your gift, then we, the body of Christ, are suffering because of it. When I talk about God wants us to be in community, and it's in community we thrive. It's in community we thrive if every one of us are doing our community. If every one of us are using our spiritual gift. One of the great mistakes the church made in the last hundred years, was to teach God's people to come in on Sunday so you could watch me exercise my spiritual gift. I do exercise my spiritual gift. This is only one of them. I have several. This is only one of them. But you watching me exercise my spiritual gift is not the same as you exercising your spiritual gift. Does that make sense? And we taught a whole generation, about a hundred years of Christians, nothing about spiritual gifts, So they all think the pastor has one and we go watch him use it on Sunday. Oh, no, 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 no. No, you. Read those verses 4 through 8 again. You are members of the body. And God has given to you. And he's given to you a spiritual gift. And each of you are under an obligation to use it. You have a corporate responsibility to the body of Christ to use your gift for the benefit of the people sitting next to you this morning. You're to use your gift. I'm using my gift to help you. You're to use your gift to help me. You're to use your gift to help your wife, to help your neighbor, to help the person sitting in the section with you. We're all to be using our gifts. Now, do you know what your gift is? Because if you don't discover your gift, you'll never step up and exercise it. 
You need to know what your gift is. And if you don't exercise it, Paul's implications are, then all of us are going to be conformed to the image of this present world. We're just going to be thinking like the world thinks. You know the way the world thinks? When I come to an assembly where there's instruments and someone speaking, I'm a spectator and they're the performers. That's what the world thinks. I mean, you get that, right? Listen, we didn't have a performance here this morning. We had worship. You, I don't, I'm trying to be ugly, but you weren't on our audience this morning. When these guys were up here playing and singing, God was all of our audience It was him that we were singing to and for. And we just invite you all to join with us in the body. Somebody needs to get us started. You see what I'm saying? They're using their gift to help us all go to God and worship. And if we don't start thinking differently, the only other uh, answer is we're going to be conformed to the image of this world. We're going to think like the world if we don't think like Christ and have our minds transformed, have them renewed. We're just going to limp along, and we're not going to be all that we ought to be. The church will be misshapen somehow if you don't do your part. Now, the role of your discipleship leader, the role of your leader is to help you discover your spiritual gifts. A test is one way. Observation is another way. By using your gift and watch is another way. Your small group leader, your, your, your discipleship leader is to help you discover and, and figure out how your gift translates into practical service corporately in community in the body of Christ. And if you don't think correctly, then you might never recognize your gift. You may have never even been looking for your gift. Or if you're not thinking correctly, you may mistake your gift. And you may be pursuing the wrong gift. That's not really your gift. A lot of people, because this is what we do on Sunday, think, well, if I'm gifted, then I have to do something like the pastor. No, Mike, that's what Paul is saying. My gift's not your gift. And your gift's not my gift. Uh, they all have to be the same. So you've got a gift. What, what is your gift and how do you use it in, in the body of Christ? Now, let, let me conclude with this. You, you have a wonderful gift, or many, maybe, that has been given to you graciously by a God who wants his body to be everything community should be in the, in the, in the New Testament church in the body of Christ. He's given you that gift so you can help us all be what God wants us to be. And we can't be distracted with the things that the world's distracted with. Instead, we're called to think the way God wants us to think. How do you think about the body of Christ? How do you think about how you fit into the body of Christ? How do you think about your spiritual gift? Have your mind transformed this morning because when you use your gift and we all decide we're going to do that and change our thinking, then the body of Christ is going to be transformed. And together we'll start being what God wants us to be. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Let's figure out the implications of that now very quickly. Christian, let me challenge you first of all with this. Maybe this morning, in this moment, you, you, you see getting into the Word of God very differently. Maybe you've been told or taught to read your Bible daily, have a devotion with God daily, have some time in the Word of God daily, and maybe you've never understood why. Maybe you see it differently this morning. And you understand, now I know why i got to get the Word of God in me, because without that I can't be transformed. Here's what I'm going to ask every Christian to do. 
Would you this morning say to God, God, I want to I wanna have a redo. I want to have a fresh start this morning on this issue of getting the word of God into my mind. And God, I'm, I'm going to make a fresh commitment this morning to get in the word every day and get some of the word of God into my mind. If I've got to read it, if I've got to put it on the you know CD or the radio or an MP3 or if I've got to write it out, whatever, I'm going to try to get the word of God into my heart because I'm not going to have a renewed mind without it. And I see that this morning. God, I want to make a fresh commitment and I want to start fresh tomorrow morning trying to get the word of God into my heart every day. Christians, the second thing is you have to be yielding to the Holy Spirit who wants to take the word of God. Now, there's no use getting it into you if you're not going to let God change you. Let the Holy Spirit apply it to your life. So, would every Christian here this morning take a moment? The Holy Spirit is God. He is God. Would you just say to the Holy Spirit this morning, I'm sorry where I've ignored your voice. I'm sorry where I've shut you out and tuned you out and hardened my heart against your speaking and changing my life. I really want my mind to be transformed. I want to think the way God wants me to think. I want to respond the way God wants me to respond. I want to live the way God wants me to live. Change my thinking. Change my attitudes, Holy Spirit. I give you the controls of my life this morning. And I want to just say to you, if I've never said before to you, Holy Spirit of the living God, thank you for being in me. Transform me from the inside out. I'm going to try to feed you some scripture every day so you can work on my old mind and my old heart and transform them. And when I throw that softball over the plate, you just crush it. Just, just crush it. Transform me. I'd like every Christian here this morning to say to God, God, would you please reveal my spiritual gift to me? God, would you please reveal to me that I might understand how you've gifted me? And how that applies to service in the body of Christ. God, would you please speak to my life group leader, my discipleship leader. And reveal my spiritual gift to the person who's leading me. So that they might have the discernment to see in me what you're doing in my life. God, if you'll reveal to me what my spiritual gifts are. I'm willing this morning to dedicate my spiritual gifts back to you as an act of daily worship, as an act of service. Whatever they are, God, I want to use them for you and for the benefit of your church that this community might be everything it needs to be to show the world Christ. God's speaking to the hearts of some maybe this morning that you don't know Christ as your Savior. There's never been a better moment to call out to God and ask Him to forgive you of your sins and redeem you, save you, adopt you, become the Lord of your life than right now. If you're ready to take that step, I want you to pray with me right now. Pray like this. Dear Father, God, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. 
I, I see myself as sinful standing before a holy God. And Lord, I have no righteousness of my own. And this morning, I appeal to Jesus Christ. I believe you died on the cross. You lived a perfect life and became my sacrifice. You were buried and rose again to be my Savior. I'm putting all of my faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ this morning. Knowing that I can't save myself, I look to you, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins, cleanse me, wash me, and give me your righteousness as a free gift. I receive it. I accept it because I accept you as the Lord and Savior of my life today. Thank you for loving me. And thank you for saving me today. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. Here's what needs to happen now. If you prayed to receive Christ before you leave this building, either at the Welcome Center or come and find Jeremy, myself, David, and just come up and extend your hand and say, Hey, I received Christ as my Savior today. You need to tell someone so we can pray for you, so we can give you some information about what your next steps are. For every Christian here this morning, for for every member of Cornerstone, you've already got a blast this morning. Many of you already got emails today. And you'll get more uh, in the notes if you go to Uversion. There's a link for a spiritual gifts test. We're going to ask every member of Cornerstone, every guest attending Cornerstone today to go take spiritual gifts test. It's in Uversion notes. Or it's in the blast you got today. If you don't get either one of those, you need to stop by the Welcome Center right now. Give them a phone number or an email. Let them blast you the spiritual gifts test. It's electronic. It's online. We're going to ask every one of you to take it. Okay? It'll tell you, hey, here's the way you're wired. Here's the way you're gifted. You need to think about these areas and pray over them. Then you can take that to your discipleship group tonight. And you can say to your small group leader, I took the test today. Here's what it looks like for me. Those results get automatically mailed to the discipleship pastor. But there's another field there where you can email it to someone else as well. If you're in a discipleship group, put your group leader's email address in there. So when it goes tonight, it'll already be at your small group leader. And y'all can talk it out and talk about how... You need to plug into serving the body of Christ with your spiritual gifts. Romans 1, reread this week, then read Romans 12. Going forward, you'll be ready for next Sunday, okay? Everybody know what we need to do this week? All right. Be not conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you can show God what it looks like to live as a holy sacrifice of worship every day, okay? Let's sing a song and let's go home with joy in our heart. Pastor Jeremy.